Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. The New Yorker's Adam Gopnik is one of the finest literary stylists in all of journalism. But as a man in late middle age, is he too late to learn other skills? He apprenticed himself to an artist, a boxer, a dancer and other practitioners to understand the secrets of mastery. He joined us live at The Conduit to share that journey with Hannah McInnes. It's the subject of his new book, The Real Work. Enjoy. So I think the first question is just the obvious one for those who don't know. What is the real work of the title? So the real work is an expression that magicians use. And I first heard it when I followed my 13-year-old son to Las Vegas, uh, where he wanted to start work as a lounge magician. And if you've never followed your 13-year-old son to Las Vegas to hang with lounge magicians, you've, you haven't yet lived. And while I was there, and I it was there with his um, great teacher, uh, an amazing sleight of hand man named Jamie Ian Swiss, who's one of the many irascible teachers who fill this book, we would go out after when the magicians all stopped working at one or two in the morning, and you'd go to um, uh, not a bar with my son, but to a diner for an early breakfast. And I would hear the magicians talk to each other in a kind of code, that beautiful code that shop talk is. And they would say, you know, Flosso's illusion. Who's got the real work on that? Or the, you know, the, the Venmo shuffle. Who's got the real work on that? And over time, I realized what they were talking about, what they meant by the real work was not which magician had invented a trick or effect, nor did they mean um, who did it in the most spectacular possible way, the way David Copperfield makes the Statue of Liberty and so on disappear. No, what they meant was who did a particular trick or illusion with maximum technical expertise coupled with the most, uh, the shrewdest empathetic engagement with the audience, who could anticipate what the audience expected and play off against those expectations. Who did the trick best, not just with his or her fingers, but with his mind. That's what they meant by someone who had the real work. And as soon as I heard that and I understood it, I recognized it as a universally applicable concept or term, because we all know who's got the real work in just that sense in any field we enter, any field we master, who's got the best balance between virtuosity and soul in, in, in anything we do. It's how we judge musicians. It's how we judge uh, presenters, writers, anyone. So I got fascinated by that idea and realized that, it was a, that within that idea was this rich idea of, of mastery. And I was particularly drawn to it, um, to answer your question more fully than you wanted, than, than you wanted me to, but just to explain the, um, the connection with my 13-year-old son, is that we tend in our civilization, broadly uh, across the globe, to emphasize achievement, it seems to me, at the expense of accomplishment. We drive our kids in particular to get into the next grade, pass the next test. We give them a set of hurdles that they have to leap over. And though they leap over them abundantly or obediently, they, I always feel that they get much less from those experiences, even though if they get public applause, than they do from all of the private, obsessive uh, forms of accomplishment that they pursue. So I felt my Luke, my 13-year-old son then, was gaining more from actually finding out what it is to persevere and learn a, a classic magic routine like the one called Triumph, then he was out of learning trigonometry in eighth grade, just as I, at the same age, 
had the key event in my life when I was 12 was not going to school, certainly. It was I you know, got a $40 folk guitar and a big book of Beatle chords and painfully, literally painfully, with my fingers bleeding on the strings, I learned how to form a C chord and an F chord and a G chord and an A minor chord. And I was making music to my own amazement. And without exaggeration, everything I've done since in life is built on the foundation of those five chords, of that activity, of looking at something that seemed utterly impenetrable and making sense of it in a way that enabled me to do something I desperately wanted to do. So I believed that accomplishment was more important and far more neglected than achievement, and I wanted to pursue that line of accomplishment which leads us towards the real work. So accomplishment and mastery, to explain the sort of definitions where, where they differ. I think that actually one leads to the other. Yeah. I think that their achievement and accomplishment seem to me significantly different things, although it's a slightly metaphysical distinction, and we could argue about the, uh, you know, how many angels dance on the head of a pin of achievement as against accomplishment. But accomplishment is what leads us towards master. It's the it's the repeated feeling that I'm getting better at this, that there's a, and even more than that, I think it's the feeling that uh, by getting better at it, I'm achieving a state of internal satisfaction and a sense of contentment, right. sense of absorption above it. What's happiness after all, except absorption, and absorption in something that's often, almost always outside ourselves, right? And it's those moments when we suddenly kind of look up and say, oh, this was great, you know, I've been, I've, this is, uh, I has erased everything else from my mind. This is satisfying. This is uh, happiness. And those moments, I think, are the source, are rooted in accomplishment and are exactly what lead us towards mastery. When you, when you say that, I think of um, a moment that's, I'm not going to flip, flip through my pages, when you're baking and you, you talk yes. about that being lost in the moment. A lot of people think of it as flow. Yes. So that, when you're mastering something, that's the moment when you forget all other thoughts and yes, find exactly. that meditative state. Exactly. You, know, you can get it when I'm baking with my mother in, the, in that, that particular uh, context and you find there's nothing but you, the dough, you, the yeast, and the oven, right? It's like that old song, you, you, and the night, and the music. You, and the yeast, and the oven, fill me with flaming desire. That's the moment that you seek out uh, in life. And the great thing, and sort of, the, this is a book, the, these are really comic essays about my own inadequacies. They're not uh, triumphant essays about my mastering these things in the sense that I would present yourself myself to you as a as an accomplished draftsman or a, a Formula One driver, though I learned to drive in the course of the book, nor uh, as, a, as a boxer who is prepared to take on the world. I'll have to find another five foot six Jewish intellectual for me to fight if I'm ever going to actually use all the skills I learned by studying boxing for, for the past two or three years. But the remarkable thing is, is that the internal experience, the interior experience of learning those things, just the way when I learned the guitar chords, right, you have an astonishing commonality in what the experience of learning is like, especially those, those kinds of physical skills that we all uh, value and we all, all seek out, and which are, I think, inseparable from higher mental skills. Let's hold, the, let's hold that thought for just a moment. But um, in every case, you start off with all these counterintuitive, stumbling, small steps, and you're learning to dance you're stumbling over your feet as you try to hold your partner in a straight line. When you're learning to box, you learn not to unleash your belligerence. You learn a set of very tightly choreographed 
punches that you have to throw in a particular sequence, jab, jab, cross, slip, uppercut, repeat it. And it's very counterintuitive when you start doing it. And again, in boxing, the key to boxing is not unleashing your belligerence. It's alerting your defensive reactions. It's learning how to get your hands back in position. My boxing teacher says, I need your right hand back. I need your right hand back. I need your left hand back. I need your left hand back. Not slug the guy, but I need your right hand back over and over. But over time, simply by uh, practicing, persevering in those stumbling small steps, you suddenly find yourself in possession of what feels at least like a kind of seamless sequence of performance. And that moment when you suddenly look and say, oh my goodness, I just, I didn't just throw two jabs and a, and a cross, I actually finished the sequence. I actually ended up uh, on balance in my fighting stance. And those moments are exhilarating. They're more than exhilarating. They're what I call a, a cognitive opiate. You know, we have drugs that we inject into our veins, and then we have cognitive opiates that we produce in our brains. And they're every bit as addictive and infinitely more rewarding. Because when you're learning to draw, you say um, life drawing was like everything else you learned to do, as you've been saying, a slow carpentering of fragments into the illusion of a harmonious whole. The good news was that drawing was like everything else, and even I could learn to do it. And you have this sort of euphoric yeah. epiphany moment yes. when you can suddenly do it. I wonder if you could describe that moment and perhaps go back a bit to why you did decide you wanted to well, learn to draw. A, a lot of the activities that I dove into, and I should emphasize too that all of this sort of happened organically. It wasn't that I you know, had an idea for a book and said, I'm going to learn all of these things. It just is over the course of 15 years without my planning it, one after another of these things crossed my path, and I wrote essays about a few of them for The New Yorker, and then I looked around and realized I had a book, um, or a kind of swindle, if you, if you think of it in another way. But I realized I had a book, and I thought, I can continue doing these things and learning. Drawing was very powerful for me because it was, in many respects, a compensatory act, because I'd spent, oh, 30 years of my life as a practicing art critic, uh, going to exhibitions, giving them grades, saying chewy and sapient things about Aikens and Bellini and Raphael. And yet I recognized when I reached, what shall we call it, early middle age, that I actually couldn't draw anything. I couldn't draw a blade of grass. Now, you can make a perfectly legitimate case that it's not essential to an art critic to actually be able to draw any more than it's essential to a sports writer to actually be able to uh, kick a football or uh, hit a, a cricket ball or a baseball. But I do think that if you've never had the experience of doing it badly, you don't really understand at a kind of deep kinesthetic human level what it is like to do it well, what the actual challenge is that presents someone who does kick a football or hit a baseball hard, what, what that's like. So I wanted to learn to draw for those reasons. And I had a inspired but crazy teacher um, named Jacob Collins. This is a book, I, it occurred to me only when I, in the last few days that, you know, there's a reason why Greek mythology always lands on the centaur as the great teacher of all the heroes. It's because the centaur is the unmanageable man, is the wild figure with um, a, a horse's body. And you can't, you can never domesticate the centaur, but the centaur teaches. The cent and all of my teachers were centaurs. They're ornery, difficult, irascible eccentrics. I hope none of them are watching tonight right now. But, and Jacob is a uh, representational painter of enormous uh, sensitivity and skill, who basically thinks that art took a wrong turn around 1855 
And everything that has been done in art since then is a huge mistake and an error. And I don't mean, you know, there are a lot of people who feel that way. You know, everybody has an appetite for modern art that goes up to Warhol. It goes up, say, I can't get past Warhol. I can't get, I can get into Warhol. I can't get into Jeff Koons, right? Jacob thinks Courbet was a, was a huge mistake. He thinks Manet and Monet are, are charlatans and Cezanne and Matisse ham-handed incompetence. This is an interest, I don't share any of these views, but this is an interesting person to study with. We learn far more from someone who is completely resistant to our, our natural instincts and impulses than from someone who adheres to them. And I didn't want a drawing teacher who would essentially say, oh, your job is to express yourself. And then you express yourself and we'll pin it on the refrigerator, so to speak, and show it off to anyone. I wanted a real hard ass who would resist those things. And I certainly got one in, in Jacob. And I was as I was so inept at the act of life drawing when I started out. He has this astonishing atelier in New York, which is really like you open the door and it's stepping back into 1854, one year before everything went wrong, filled with plaster casts of antique statues and, of course, um, lots of naked people who are posing uh, for other clothed people. Uh, great, you know, it's life drawing. Uh, class, so I stepped into this world, and I literally did not know where to begin. Uh, you know, I was holding the pencil like Lady Macbeth about to stab somebody over and over, and I didn't know where the task even began. So what Jacob, recognizing the piteous state of my incompetence, did was to begin to give me, once again, just like the sequence of boxing, give me these extremely simple counterintuitive subroutines to pursue, so for instance, right, in trying to draw a face, instead of staring at the face and trying to get it right, he emphasized for me that we all carry in our heads a symbol set that substitutes for faces in our, in our normal interaction. We make, when we are asked to draw a face, we make the head too small, the eyes too big, the nose a triangle, and the mouth a banana. That's the way we've come to conceptualize a face in our heads, and it has nothing to do with the way faces actually look in the world, but trying to draw the face the way it looks in the world is too huge a task when you're starting. So Jacob said to me, just look at this face and ask yourself, imagine superimpose a clock face on top of it, and then just ask yourself, where does the line of the eyes fall on that clock face? Is it at 2 p.m.? I'm looking at this lady who's generously allowing me to look at her. Is it at 2 p.m.? Or is it 2.01 p.m.? And Jacob was, was both incredibly demanding, but also elaborately polite, would look at it, I'd say, well, it seems to me to fall at 2 p.m. He'd say, I would argue that it actually falls closer to 2.01 p.m. And I would begin my inquiry with my pencil at 2.01 p.m. And you would draw the face and, and do it. Week after week, session after session doing this, you actually begin to see, because you're calibrating the, the posture, the alignment of a face against this dial that you know well. And he called them tilts in time. And he said to me, just for the next two weeks, just look at faces and make tilts in time. So I have all of these sketch papers, which just are tilts in time, tilts in time. And as you persevere in that, you begin to become attuned to the way that a, a head is aligned. Or in trying to do life drawing, doing you know naked people, he would say, you know, if you ever have done this, I'm sure many of you have, you know that the play of light and shadow on the interior of a human torso is absolutely mesmerizing, that the chiaroscuro of muscle and bone of light and shadow, but it's 
almost impossible to describe if you're starting from scratch. So he would say, just look for an outline that you haven't seen before. Find the outline of a little African nation. You know how kind of irregular those outlines can be. He'd say, or find the profile of a snooty, he often said, a snooty English butler. He assumed there were still butters, butlers being snooty in England. It's an American <laughs> Jewish um, illusion. And he would say, find that outline somewhere in Nate. Nate was our model. Find that outline somewhere in Nate's physique and draw that. Because once again, what you're doing is, is you're violating, you're uh, breaking your own symbol set. But you don't do it by way of kind of naive or innocent observation. You do it by way of another set of schemas that are more original to you, that enable you to um, rebel against your inherited um, symbol set. You pursue these things day after day, week after week. And over the space of a year, you suddenly, and you change your approach, you, instead of stabbing overhand, you, you gesture underhand. And even someone as utterly inept at drawing as I am suddenly began to produce something that was actually somewhere close to an echo of a faint aroma of a final suggestion of a human body. <laughs> I mean, you say this composite of small steps is essentially um, essential to mastery. Yes. It suggests that there's a humility and a patience in it that's so important. Yes, that's a very good point. Yes, exactly. And for uh, those of us who are arrogantly ensconced in our own particular kind of expertise, um, it is salubrious to actually be reminded of how difficult it is to learn a new thing and how, and how significant it is. Um, and, and yes, I think that's true. And there is, I hope, there is the comedy of humility throughout this book because at each time I try to learn something new, I found myself utterly inept at, at doing it. But the encouraging thing is, is that if I can, you can. You know, if any, that it genuinely is. I say at the beginning of this book, this is a self-help book oh, that just, won't help. Yeah. And, and I may mean that. I don't have any recipes. I don't believe there are any recipes. I don't have any shortcuts to offer you. But what I do believe is that we construct ourselves as souls, as people, through the accumulation of our accomplishments, through the things that throw us outside the, the prison of ourselves and enable us to enter into the tradition of life drawing or simply the possibility of getting behind the wheel of a car and actually driving rather than being paralyzed by well, it. Well, <laughs> driving is one that perhaps you come to see as not a composite of small steps. That's sort of the, the different one. And you, many yeah. of us already perhaps can drive and you learn to drive as part it's of your- It's astounding how many people can drive, right? It's <laughs> such a, it was a huge hill for me to climb because I had been, I, I live in New York City and no one, well, essentially no one drives in New York City who, because it's too expensive and, and I once, so I have one Canadian friend who owns a car in New York. And my son Luke and I was about nine, he was about nine. And we were going to go to a basketball game. And he started trudging dutifully to the subway, uh, to the tube. And uh, I said, no, no, Bruce is picking us up. And he said, we're going by car? He had never gone anywhere within New York by, by someone picking him up in a car. So I never had learned how to drive. And I was in my 50s. And Luke was turning 20 at that point and was going to have to get his driver's license, one or two. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to get my driver's license along with Luke. And I do believe we're the only father-son combo ever to get their driver's license, not only on the same day, 
but from the same driving instructor. I got in the car and did my test. I got out, I got my license out of sympathy and alarm, I think as much as, as anything else. What will happen when this guy is out driving? And then Luke got in the car and did his test and we both had our licenses to wave at our astounding driving instructor, Arturo Leon, who took us both under his, his, his very capacious Ecuadorian wing and taught us to drive. I love your observations about driving because people might not think of it as a skill that you master. You say one form of mastery, and this is driving, is the mastery of not seeing too much. And you also describe it as one of the last democratic things we do, you come to discover. Yes. Why do you see driving like that? Two reasons. Um, first of all, um, the thing that anyone who's been driving since they were 16 or 17 or in normal age won't recognize is that driving is not terribly difficult, unlike life drawing, for instance. Driving is not difficult. It is just incredibly dangerous. And you have to be my age when you start driving to understand just how insanely dangerous this thing is. It never should have started, and it not, should not be allowed. Because you've got people as unreliable as myself behind the wheel of three tons of steel going at 50 miles per hour or more and nobody is stopping us from doing this, and it's insanely dangerous. But it's democratic as well in the sense that two things are true. It's despite its being insanely dangerous, the truth is, though we're, we're plagued by uh, autoralities and it's a terrible thing and there's nothing worse than drunk driving and we should talk about, uh, uh, that's a good model for lots of other things, by the way. But in any case, the, um, despite that, on the whole, I, I get a taxi from one part of London to another, and it, it more or less organizes itself. People learn to yield. People learn to stop at traffic lights. You know, the, the strength of the society are all those parts of it that are self-organizing and self-emerging. And driving is a good example of how that's possible. There, there's relatively little coercion in policing that goes on, and yet driving is, despite its inherent lethality, on the whole, a safe pursuit. Um, so it's democratic in that sense. It's a beautiful demonstration of the power of self-organization for uh, uh, society. And it's democratic in the other sense that everybody can do it. Everybody does do it. And when you're going to get your license at what we call the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles, there's one line, and there's only one line that everybody gets in and one way to, to, to get it. It's one of the few things in American life, at least, that you really can't buy your way out of. You can buy your way out of the security line at the airport, but you can't buy your way out of the DMV, at least not in New York City. Yes, I'll tell you about how you do that. We'll talk about that later. I'm, I'm going to just um, skip to something you say in the introduction, as well as the fact you are writing a self-help book that won't help, um, which is that perhaps you, you write much of what we call the real work is women's work yes. made real. Perhaps yes. you could explain. Good. I'm glad you caught that sense because it was an important one for me. I meant by that that there's a lot of incidental domestic mastery in our lives that typically we have denigrated or condescended to. I give the example, the first time I remember consciously being aware of someone doing something incredibly difficult that I found utterly admirable was watching my mother when I was about three or four rolling out strudel dough. She had this big lump of undifferentiated dough and as my sister and I have five sisters, but this was my older sister, sat under the table, she rolled this thing out until it, and with her a rolling pin and then with her hands until it became parchment thin and it never tore, it never broke. And she made this hard plastic thing into this 
delicate paper thing. And I remember being stunned and thinking, how could any human being do something like that? That's it's my mom, right? That's amazing. Now, I should add instantly that my mother is not, uh, uh, though she's a baker, and there's a whole long chapter about her baking, was a scientist and spent her life as a professor of linguistics at McGill University in Montreal. So she wasn't simply a in any sense devoted to the domestic arts. But I remember thinking powerfully that that was an example of that kind of mastery. And one of the reasons I wanted to write a chapter about baking with my mother after she had retired from her work as a scientist is because it was a way of, it was compensatory in another way too, right? It was a way of paying attention to things my mother did beautifully and brilliantly that I might not other have otherwise have, uh, have taken in. And it was a way of having a conversation with her through our hands in, in dough that we would have had difficulty having because we have a, we're very alike. We're enormously similar, and therefore we have a thorny relationship, as we tend to do with people we are exactly alike. Yeah. And it's a wonderful chapter. It makes You can't read it when you're hungry because it just <laughs> sounds all too delicious, everything that you Can make. I, I just t um, my friend Malcolm Gladwell, who I'm sure many of you have met or read, and this shows you the difference between me and Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm said when he had read it, he said, my mother invented this thing called the boissant, which is a cross from oh, a brioche and a croissant. <laughs> and Malcolm said, I do not understand how you have left a million dollars lying on the floor. You can take these boissants, put them out. Mom got next boissants. And you can sell them on every street. You can have a whole franchise business that, this way. He's right. Your mom sounds uh, yes. like a creative genius uh, when is. I read that. She is. But when we could talk about that chapter for the rest of our time, but, but we won't. And I mean, in a way, I was talking about humility and, and the humility of, of a mastery like your mother's with the strudel comes from the fact that it's not so much a performance. It, there isn't an audience. But yes. a lot of what you talk about involves magicians. And, and you say sort of mastery requires a certain performative nature, a certain performance to it. Yes. Well, I think that's true. I mean, obviously, it's true and I love using magic as a kind of template for mastery because it's an art form that we all tend to condescend to. Jamie Ian Swiss, the, the irascible teacher in, in that section, um, said once, the only reason mimes exist is so the magicians finally have someone to patronize. Um, <laughs> and so we, not, we don't take magicians seriously as practitioners of a high art, but in fact, everything that's involved in the highest art is in their work, the incredible level of technical virtuosity. Whereas most, most of the time technique needs to be transparent, their technique has to be invisible. Only other magicians understand the, the degree of difficulty in what they're doing. And at the same time, what makes them artists rather than just technicians is their ability to read an audience, anticipate an audience's reactions, just the way that a great singer uh, is, is always back phrasing or forward phrasing, never is exactly on the notes, is, knows what you expect to hear as the next note and plays with your attention and your expectations uh, at every moment. So does a great speaker, so does anyone who's, who's good at performing. So that element of the performative, I think, is there in all forms of mastery. One of the ones that was funny is that Arturo, my driving instructor, insisted that the key thing about learning to drive is not just knowing how to drive, but knowing how to look like a driver, because you have to impress the driving judge, right? The driving judge doesn't knows that you can press the accelerator and the brake, but wants to see that you are actually uh, at home in the car, that you're, that you're casual about it. So Arturo's repeated 
instruction was become the noodle. He would say, Adam, you must become the noodle. And I'd say, Arturo, what do you mean become the noodle? And he would say, just let your whole body just become the noodle. Let, let it flop, let it be free, look like a person. Don't look like someone who's a robot. Just become the noodle. Focus, you have to focus, focus, but then be free. Focus and be free. Focus and become the noodle. And the truth is that that's like the best advice you can give to any artist in any field. In fact, Arturo said to me, after we'd been together for a while, he said, you know, I would like to write a book called Dream Driving about my driving technique. How do you write a book, Adam? Because I figured that I would know if I obviously couldn't drive, but I would know that. And I tried to explain to him how you write a book and finally said, Arturo, you have to become the noodle to write a book. And that is how you write a book. You combine focus and attention on a task at hand, but you want to fill it with a voice. You want to fill it with noodleness. You want to fill it with a sense of relaxation, of a human, of a human existence, of somebody who's at home in the book. That's why we, when we read some an author we love, we don't read them because they're grammatically precise. We they need to have. We need to have a large vocabulary, a feeling for the complexities of English grammar, but we read them because they're the noodle on the page. They feel free, they impress us the way I was supposed to impress the, uh, the driving judge. Well, what did you mean then when you, say, when you talk about um, the asymmetry of, of mastery and that we overrate masters? Oh, I, I meant by that something um, that was keyed off for me by, uh, I got fascinated with the Turk. Does anyone know what the Turk is? It's an 18th century automaton a chess-playing automaton that toured all of Europe. And it was a robot. They didn't have the word robot then. Uh, but an automaton that was dressed in Ottoman garb. And it went from city to city. And it would and the, the man who operated it, von Kemplin, would challenge chess players from Napoleon to Ben Franklin to play the Turk. And it supposedly never lost or rarely lost. And people were fascinated by it. Richard Babbage, the father of computing, saw it and said, how would you actually build something that could do this? But he knew that it couldn't do it, and in fact, it didn't do it. It was just a magician's illusion with a chess player hidden in the, in the base, cleverly hidden behind sprockets and wheels and so on. The point was, von Kemplin was a genius, but his genius didn't depend on his being able to build a chess-playing automaton, which no one could do at that time. No one could do until very recently, actually. Uh, his genius was, because everyone said who thought there was a chess player inside it said there can't be a chess player inside it because it would have to be this tiny little dwarf chess player and he would have to be addicted to drugs and he'd have to somehow be a chess master who no one has ever met before and what von Kemplin's genius was to know that there were a lot of good chess players in the world and he would simply go to the chess cafe in any city he was in Boston or London or Paris and basically to say who needs work who wants a gig and doesn't mind crowded working conditions <laughs> And he would get very good chess players inside the Turk. And the astonishing thing and the instructive thing is that a good chess player within the impressive atmospherics, within the impressive totality of this apparatus would suddenly become a great chess player, an intimidating chess player, right? And so that's the sense in which I mean that von Kemplin's genius was to see there are a lot more really good chess players in the world than you think. That's part of uh, modernity cite my son Luke again, but he, after he gave up magic, he discovered at about the age of 16, as most boys who begin doing magic tricks at 13 discover at 16, the girls have no interest in magic tricks. You cannot impress 
a young woman with a card trick. They just are not impressed by that. They are impressed by guitar players, on the other hand. So he took up guitar and became very skilled at it. And we were discussing his becoming a guitar player once, and we were at some cocktail party where they had, you know, a band dressed up in 1920s kind of clothes. It was for Boardwalk Empire, the, the, the HBO series. And he listened for a while, and then he nudged me, and he said, Dad, that guitar player who's dressed up in the fedora and the spats is a better guitar player than anyone I've ever studied with, meaning there are an enormous number of good guitar players in the world. Every musician knows this, right? The number of really good virtuoso violinists and viola players is just enormous. The, you know, we produce them. So then the question becomes, what distinguishes that the ones that we know, the ones that we admire, and some of it is happenstance and chance and promotion and so on. But really what it is is that those, uh, th those musicians or those writers or those uh, dancers or those performers have found some unique uh, addition, which is almost invariably the deliberate addition of a kind of human imperfection that they blend into their mastery. What do I mean by that? The thing we respond to in music, and this is actually something that, that um, psychoacousticians, as they're called, guys who study music scientifically, have demonstrated if you, if you program a computer keyboard to play anything, a Chopin nocturne or a Bill Evans piece, note to note the way it's written, it sounds mechanical. But unsurprisingly, it sounds mechanical and dull. If you randomize it too much, it sounds chaotic. But there is a beautiful sweet spot that's universally recognized where between mechanical reproduction and then all of those elements, legato, vibrato, the deliberate introduction of a voice-like human imperfection that we pick out when we love a musician. It's the way Michiko Yuchida um, italicizes phrases when she plays Mozart that makes her Yuchida rather than a, a brilliant kid in, a, in an academy. And she actually talks about how hard it was for her in a highly hierarchical Japanese music academy to have the freedom to, to phrase and to italicize her phrases. Bob Dylan, right? I was just at the Bob Dylan Museum in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, you, many of you may not know there is a Bob Dylan Museum in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but there is. And the, at the Dylan Museum has the whole archive of Dylan's uh, work, and there's a fascinating letter from Dylan as a young man, and most of you are too young to remember, thank God most of you are too young tonight to remember this, but Dylan used, you know, when Dylan first appeared, people said, well, I like his songs, but he can't sing, right? Wow, what, and Dylan has a whole plane of letter in which he says, I know I don't sing like a singer, he said, but I breathe like nobody else. And it's true, if you think about Dylan's singing, it's, an, it's breathing, it's the way he takes breaths, surprising way he does it. Dylan is a breather, as much as he is a singer. And that was his genius to see that that wasn't a handicap that should have stopped him from singing. It was an enormous, it was a new way of thinking about singing that he's carried forward, um, sometimes in the most sublime way, sometimes somewhat ridiculously, like when he did his Sinatra record, right? But that's Dylan's genius. Or I was also in Seattle and visited the Jimi Hendrix Museum, one of the joys of being on the American road is you get to go to rock and roll museums, wherever you are. And Jimi Hendrix, again, was an extremely adept blues guitarist in his, the first half, it was even more than half of his career, uh, supporting Little Richard and, all, and lots of other people. But it was only when he discovered the power of distortion, it was only when he turned his amp way up and had a Stratocaster that distorted that he became Jimi Hendrix, because he sensed that there wasn't something that had been ruled out of music completely the sound of distortion, which you weren't supposed to have 
at all, that you could find a new deliberate addition of what seemed to be imperfection that would carry within it a unique idiosyncratic expressive power. And I think that's something you see again and again. You see it in writing, too. When we love a writer, we, as I said a moment ago, we don't love a writer for the extent of her vocabulary or, the mas or her mastery of English grammar. You have never read an Alice Munro story and said, oh my god, she's such a master at English grammar. No, you read her or any first-rate writer for their voice, for a distinctive voice that they're somehow able to create on the page, a sound of a human being speaking to you no matter how labyrinthian the sentences may be, as in Proust, no matter how eccentric it may be, we read and love writers for their voices, which is, once again, the ability to create, deliberately create, the quality of failable humanity yeah. on the page. And is this, this is the too perfect theory that you Yes, describe. yes, exactly, yeah. Magicians have codified exactly the, the insight I'm, I'm struggling to articulate to you in a theory. They call it too perfect theory. And the rule with, in magic is, and again, this is one reason why I love thinking about magic, because magic is such a well-organized template for the whole range of, of human art and, and artifice, is that if a magic trick could only be done in one way, no matter how astonishing it is, the audience will be completely unimpressed and uninterested in it. So that if I, if I say to you, pick a card, and you pick a card, and then I say, you are sitting, uh, stand up, there's an envelope there, you will see the card you picked in that envelope. Everyone knows I forced the card and I had a double of it in the envelope, right? The logical sequence is self-evident, right? It's, it's completely unimpressive. It's too perfect. It actually involves some skill to be able to do that, to force a card on someone and to have secreted an envelope, but it won't impress anyone because they know in advance. The magician's job is to open up six logical doors and you don't know which one you're going down and then be amazed by it. Uh, give you a uh, particularly gory Guan, Grand Guignol example. Uh, Penn and Teller, the great comic magicians, do a sawing a woman in half, right? And they know everybody has seen a woman sawed in half, and every single person understands that the, that the two ends of the box are actually bigger than you think they are, and therefore the, the woman being sawed in half just draws her legs up in, into it, and they expose it that way, supposedly accidentally. And then they pretend there's been this horrible mistake, and they've actually cut her in half, and blood spurts, and, and so on. Everyone laughs, because we understand that we're not actually seeing a murder. What we're seeing is someone brilliantly playing and toying with our anticipations and expectations. They do it at, you know, they turn, turn it up to 11. But that's the way that you get around to perfect theory. It's utterly boring to see a human being sawed in half because you know now, in a way you might not have known in the 11th century, right, that that's not what's actually happening. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, so, so many questions, but I, just following on from that, I suppose it, it makes me think that in, in a way, perfectionism is the sort of enemy of trying to master something. Letting that go is one of the most basic steps. I, I put it slightly differently. It's that that's the first cycle. We all want to be adept at the thing we, we love. And you can't put too much, if I may, 
I write six hours a day, seven days a week, and I haven't taken a day off in, since 1980. Really, Christmas. Thing. So obviously, I am devoted to the craft of writing. I also have two children to support. And so I, I do it that way, too. So And whenever there's a uh, stylistic mistake, a mistake in rhythm or sound or tone, in my work or an editor tries to introduce one, I go berserk. My, my wife does not want to be in the, in the house with me. So in that sense, I think perfectionism is essential. But what makes prose perfect to my ear, just as what makes a, a magician's demonstration perfect to the audience, is not mechanical virtuosity, no matter how hard you struggle to achieve perfection. It's exactly being able to introduce the sound of a, of a human voice to, to introduce the possibility of um, deliberately crafted human imperfection into what you're doing. That's what makes a good paragraph. It's the variety in the shapes of sentences, the variety in the lengths of sentences. You want uh, one sentence that's complicated and, and uh, labyrinthian in its approach, juxtaposed right against another idiomatic and monosyllabic sentence. That's, that's the art of writing. Um, just finally, there will certainly be um, time for questions. If you see me looking at my phone, this is not me checking my messages. I'm just making sure that I give enough time for your questions. I'm sure you have many. But you've talked about a lot of examples from sort of throughout time, really. We've gone back to the, the Turk. How do you think mastery and the perception of mastery and a master has sort of changed to the modern day? That's a, that's a good question. In the chapter on magic, I, I keep coming back to it, I know, one of the fascinating uh, figures that I got to know and looked at is David Blaine. I don't know if you know David Blaine. Is a, and David wants to break down the line between artifice and the actual. That's what all of his work is about. So he doesn't want to do tricks. Instead, he wants to do astounding things. So when he did, as I describe in the, in the book, when he did the so-called bullet catch, which is the a stunt where you stand with a steel cup in your mouth and someone fires a gun, a rifle at you, and then you catch the bullet in the steel cup. And it's usually done as a trick, as what's called a gaff, right? Because it's incredibly dangerous. Six magicians died in the first half of the 20th century doing the bullet catch. But David wanted to do it uh, properly because he didn't want there to be a line between artifice and act the actual. And I think that's one way. And the nice thing was uh, uh, Luke, my son, who returns again and again in these stories, was working as David's personal assistant at that point. And I said to him, well, what's the trick to the bullet catch then? If David is really going to do it, what's the trick to the bullet catch? And he said, oh, there's a trick to the bullet catch, Dad. I said, what is it? And he said, the trick to the bullet catch is catching the bullet, <laughs> which I thought was like one of the wisest things I'd ever heard, because it's in any arena of life, the trick to the bullet catch is catching the bullet. Finally, no matter how well you've prepared, no matter how expert you are, you have to stand there with your mouth open and a steel cup. Now, the form of it may be, we were talking before, what actors do coming up, so to speak, naked on stage, being able to, not literally, but to be able to expose their psyches on stage, that's catching the bullet in, in, in another kind. Or it may be, uh, there's a chapter in this book um, for me, that was extremely difficult and embarrassing to write, but I felt I had to do in order to fill out the, the, the human complexity of the book. So we all, at some point, have to uh, stand up and catch the bullet.
Do you want to talk about that chapter? Should we go on with what you're doing and um, then I can go no, to no, that? No, no, Why didn't you book? Because I'm really interested to feel to, for you to carry on with what you were saying, why you felt you wanted to include that um, chapter about so, relieving. Yes, it's called, the chapter's called Relieving, and I thought, I wrote it and then thought long and hard about not publishing it. I, like many of you in this audience, I suspect, I suffer from a, a phobia, an anxiety disorder, it's sometimes called, which is called periuresis. It has a... Uh, scientific name, and it's the it's shy bladder syndrome. We call it uh, colloquially only in, in an extreme order where you can't urinate in any public place, including airplanes or trains or restaurants. And it sounds ridiculous and and <clears throat> icky and and embarrassing. But if you suffer from it, and no one knows why you get it, it doesn't seem to be tied to a particular trauma. It's like so many anxiety disorders. You sort of wake up and you realize you've had this disorder for 10 years and you've evolved a lot of compensatory activities that keep you from having to address it. And then at some point it's 30 years or 40 years and all you know is the avoidance behavior and you no longer are able to address the anxiety. So I went to still one more irascible centaur, a brilliant guy named uh, Dan Rocker, who was my uh, therapist, who, an interesting man, he had made a fortune as a trader on Wall Street, and then 9-11 happened. And he realized, I don't want to spend the rest of my life being a trader on Wall Street. Life is too short. And he suffered from periuresis himself, and he put himself the task of helping men get over it. And class, you use classic cognitive behavioral therapy to, to get better on it, which if any of you have ever been in, is just you establish a, what's called an exposure hierarchy. What can't you do? What can you do? It's like, uh, you know, um, young women particularly who suffer from an eating disorder, the way you do it is to say, what can you have on your plate? What is unthreatening to you? What can you deal with? And then you try to introduce something more each week or each meal sometimes. And that's how you get over it is, in, is step by step. And the same thing is true about this. And I wanted to put that in the book partly because one of the things that Dan emphasized, which I think is a profound truth, is everyone is struggling with something. You cannot, I cannot look out at this audience without knowing that somebody there is terrified of getting in an MRI because they're claustrophobic, and someone else uh, can't go up to the roof of this building because they suffer from vertigo, and somebody else has an eating disorder, and so on. And we all are struggling with something. Insomnia is a, is a, frequent, is a frequent one. We all create we all entrap ourselves in our own mastery in an odd way. What, one of the points I wanted to make in that chapter is that phobias are a kind of black mass version of mastery. We construct very skillfully, most of the time, a, a kind of prison of our own making in which we, in which we live. And we have to, dis, in the same way that we have to assemble a, a new mastery, playing the piano or, or boxing or dancing, from a sequence of small, difficult steps that eventually come together. We have to disassemble our phobias and anxiety disorders in the same way, step by step, piece by piece, until finally we discover that we no longer, it's no longer essential to our existence. So both sort of for a technical reason, because I wanted to show that disassembling those steps was, a, was powerful, and also because I wanted to be uh, vulnerable in the book. I wanted it not to be about me I'm not good at any of these things, but I didn't want it just to be a series of comic stories. I wanted it to have a part. I don't think that there's any work of art of any kind, a movie, a musical, which I write, uh, a play or a book, that doesn't, will ever survive if there isn't one thing in it that you say to yourself when you start, 
I can't get away with this. This is, I can't do this. It's not gonna, you know. If you don't have something like that, then the, then the degree of difficulty isn't high enough. Um, before questions, I've just realized that um, my colleague at How To Academy said you cannot not ask him about tar. Oh, all right. <laughs> you've, just be, you've just appeared in, in that as yes. one of the parts. How, how was that and why did that come about? So that came about because I got a phone call one day from uh, filmmaker Todd Field and he, out of the blue, towards the end of the pandemic, and he said, I've written, you don't know me, but I've written a movie for Kate Blanchett and it has a character in it named Adam Gopnik and I wonder if you would consider playing this character. <laughs> Which was an kind of charming thing, but I said, gee, I don't think I can do that. I'm a serious writer, I'm fighting fascism in America and gun insanity. And I write, you know, 6,000 word pieces about Proust. I don't see myself doing that. And he said, in effect, um, that's too bad because we wanted to bring you and your wife to Berlin for 10 days and we would have loved to have put you up here uh, and to live well. And Kate will be so disappointed because she was looking forward to working with you with your unique blend of warmth and electricity. And now she's going to have to do it She'll be so disappointed, she'll do it with some actor. And I said, hold on, I'll call Mr. Gopnik to the phone. <laughs> That's an old Woody Allen joke, if any of you know it. But I, that was in effect what happened. Off we go to Berlin. I spend two days exactly like this with Kate playing Lydia Tarr and me in this chair and uh, leaning forward because I, I had to use the same body language that you've, you've been using, right? Where we lean forward, we lean in, we try and entrap and seduce, get the person to say more than they ought to. And Kate was using the same body language that I've been using, which is to kind of lean back and you tap your fingers against this. We worked on this for two days. It was completely scripted. People somehow got the idea that it was improvised or that I was talking as myself. It wasn't, I was playing a part. I would not have said those things if it were me. But what was weird is it's a part I've often played in life because I'm very often in that chair trying to get Stephen Sondheim or James Taylor to, to converse in a New Yorker festival event or something. So it was me playing a part that I often play in life, but it was a part that I often play. And what made it complicated was that I was doing it in a, playing an artificial part in a totally artificial setting. So it was me pretending to be someone I often pretend to be, but I was pretending to be that someone. So it was, it was emotionally complex to do. But she was great. Anyway, we did it for two days. I had no idea what the movie was about because I didn't, I was a good little actor. I read my part and I delivered it. Didn't ask to see the script. And I was astonished as anyone when I watched the whole thing. I said, oh, wow, this is a great movie. Todd, I should add, I did, I'm being a little disingenuous. Before I said yes, I went and watched a couple of Todd Field's movies. And he's an extraordinary artist and a great filmmaker. And it made me very, exactly because I was working on this book on mastery, it made me very want, much want to be in that company. Well, congratulations. And I, I, it's now time for me to stop performing this role of asking you questions and to let the audience have their go. So I think, do we have... Um, Microphones? Yes, we've got microphones. So, um, I, I will add the funny thing about Tar is there's, there's still uh, this incredible asymmetry built into our our world because I have written literally that's a, that's an adverb my children love literally um, a million plus words for the New Yorker, but ten minutes in Tar right is what my whole reputation will now re will now rest on. I got a shout out on the Oscars and my phone filled up 
with people, you know, right, you know, texting who I hadn't seen in 20 years, right? And, did, and you, part of me wanted to say, you know, I did 6,000 words on the five ways of reading Proust, and I heard from two professors of French, right? So why didn't you text me then? Oh, dear. Um, yeah, have you got a mic? Okay. Uh, thank you, um, Adam Bofnick. That was great. Um, sharing your ideas. I wonder, you mentioned briefly your friend, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, who's associated with the concept of 10,000 hours uh, for mastery, this notion. I wondered what you thought of having a quantifiable threshold. So, so let me tell you a story. So once again, my son Luke, my daughter Olivia plays a much larger role in the book, but my son Luke somehow is appearing um, in, the, in, the, in these stories. When he was about 10 or 11, we call Malcolm and my family, not that you're not dead, Malcolm, because he's my kid's favorite visitor, and he would come for dinner, and the kids would say, Malcolm is such a great storyteller, not that you're not dead. Or Malcolm always finds the one right anecdote, not that you don't, dead. Um, <laughs> so Luke was reading Malcolm, and he came into my office and said, Dad, what do you make of these, this 10,000 hours thing of Malcolm? He was reading whichever book, whichever best-selling book that occurs in. Um, uh, <laughs> And I said, well, you know, I love Malcolm like a brother, but you know, he'll round things off for the sake of an effect sometimes. And so Luke said, well, when did you start writing seriously? And I said, when I arrived in New York in 1980 with your mom, and we figured out how many hours a day, how many weeks, and he said, and he did the calculation on his computer, and he said, Dad, your 10,000 hours were up in May of 1986. And I laughed, because that was when my first piece appeared in The New Yorker, was in May of 1986. So I called Malcolm and I said, you son of a bitch, how do you, why not does this work? And he said, he gave like a good magician to another magician, he gave the game away. He exposed it. He said, the thing is, people don't think about hours, they think about years. And 10,000 hours is exactly six years of concerted work. And if you think about it, there's no surprise in that. Because every professional program you undertake is a six-year program from the moment you walk into medical school till the moment you're left alone with a patient is typically six years. From the moment you start law school till the moment you're pleading a case by yourself is six years. Every PhD program in English or philosophy, which I should add is what Luke does now, he's getting his PhD in philosophy, having given up both card tricks and guitar, um, takes six years, right? So there's really no surprise in the idea that, it, that if you devote yourself to a craft or an art for six years, you'll get to be professionally good at it. And that, that's a kind of, that's the truth. That's what the 10,000 hours captures. Now, coming back to the point we were making before, the Beatles didn't get to be the Beatles because they played for 10,000 hours. They got to be proficient musicians because they played for 10,000 hours. But there were a lot of proficient rock and roll musicians in Liverpool. It was exactly the, the ineffable humanity of the blending of John and Paul's voices that made the Beatles the Beatles, along with lots of other, along with lots of other things. But that's the part of what Malcolm was teaching. Now, I should add immediately, the key to that six-year thing is when you're my age, right, and someone tells you it's six years, six years was yesterday, right? Everything happened six years ago. I, you know, six years is nothing. When you're 21 and someone tells you, if you devote yourself seven days a week, six hours a day to this thing, in six years, you'll be able to do it. It sounds like a life sentence, right? It sounds impossible. But that's my take on, the, on Malcolm's 10,000 hours. Thank you. Uh, my question is, can anybody do anything? And the reason I ask this question is, when I was about 15, I wanted to learn to play the guitar. And I had lessons with a guitar 
uh, instructor. And after about a year, he said to me, look, you're just wasting your time. <laughs> uh, there's no point. And then a, about six months later, I was at a party and I told this story to somebody who, who'd introduced themselves as being a guitar teacher. Right. And he said, that's absolute rubbish. You yeah. know, if you practice and if you... If you want me, to. I can teach you. Yeah, yeah, I can teach you how to play the guitar. About six months later, he said to me, I'll tell you what, you just want to uh, give it up. <laughs> so my question is, can anybody learn anything? I'd be... So my, and my answer is... You know, the things that I was taking up in this book, as I said, weren't planned. They were things that kind of fell of, of necessity, things I needed to do or wanted to do. And obviously, there are lots of things I didn't attempt um, high diving or competitive swimming or uh, tennis or other things that I sort of knew I would not even be able to get to the level of getting from the, the stumbling step to the seemingly seamless sequence. So... I wouldn't want it. So no, not everybody can do everything. We have talents and, and so on too. I think we're much more plastic in the application of those talents than we sometimes believe. And even if we're utterly inept, and I can't underline enough how inept I am at most of the things that I am writing about here, despite the blessing of all these extraordinary teachers, the satisfaction we get in inching up this much from ineptitude is enormous. I give the example in the book because it's one of my favorite metaphors. I'm sure you've all heard the story or the myth that hummingbirds and elephants have the same number of heartbeats in a lifetime. They each have a billion heartbeats, only the hummingbird expends her heartbeats in 100 days and the elephant in 100 years. And it's a beautiful poem by the poet Mary Oliver saying, what, how will you choose to, to spend your wild and unique heartbeats, a beautiful thing. That turns out to be true. There's a, actually a scientific research institute at North Carolina State University called the Heartbeat Project. And they count heartbeats of animals and grosso modo, roughly speaking, every living thing, birds and mammals at least, have a billion heartbeats in a lifetime. And what I always think about is, is that the hummingbird and the elephant, I choose to think or believe, have the same experience of existence, right? The hummingbird doesn't know that it's only living for 100 days. The hummingbird knows that it's alive, and it, it hunts, it eats, it mates, it has little hummingbirds. It, it lives its life as fully as the elephant, only in 100 days. And in the same way, I think we are, are inside ourselves are like hummingbirds, right? We don't have to know that there's an exterior elephant world that goes on uh, much longer and is far more attenuated, we judge by the hummingbird heartbeats inside ourselves. And in exactly that way, a tiny increment forward from ineptitude can be hugely rewarding, even if it remains by the exterior standard of elephants, absolute ineptitude. And that's one, that's the, come drive with me and I'll show you what I mean. <laughs> I wanted to be a rock star. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lovely what part all... of, uh, of the book. It's, it's, yes, what, what are you going to choose to do with this wild and precious, precious life? Precious what, life. what are you going to choose to do with your wild and precious yeah. heartbeats? Um, has somebody already got a microphone in their hand? Yeah. Yes, Hi. brilliant. And I'm, I'm over here, Adam. Oh, you're hey. there, and then that, we'll take one. To... You said that you, since 1980, have written for six hours a day, seven days a week. I'd love to hear about how you, or the habits, the disciplines, the mindsets that you use to continue to do that, because that's extremely impressive. Uh, but then also, how do you find ways to still improve, to find joy in mastery, to, to, to get better when you've done it for so long? And yeah, 
Sure. Well, I should add right away that the only time I break that rule is when I'm on a book tour. So I haven't actually had a chance. I wrote today for several hours, but not for six hours uninterrupted. Two things are true. And the six hours is not a boastful or arbitrary number. I have five sisters. All of them have PhDs, and they're all college professors. I am the only one in my family without a PhD. That's what we call a Jewish dropout. Um, <laughs> and one of them is a well-known psychologist, Alison Gopnik, whose books you can find um, all over. And she uh, taught me once, told me once, that it's established, it's not fake, that you can only do four hours of creative work a day, that that's sort of the maximum, and after that you start fading off. So I started doing four hours, like usually nine till one, and then an additional two hours where you answer your email and you look at what you d did the day before, and all of that kind of, that beautiful trudge work that you have to do when you're pursuing a, a, a craft. Um, and the way I discovered, and I had no, and it was horrible, I mean I can still remember the torturous feelings in my stomach when I was starting out, and for five years, six years, I felt this way, um, is you just have to make the mental task of writing into a physical task. You have to approach writing as exactly the way you approach whatever you do for your aerobic exercise. If you jog, writing is jogging. If you ride a stationary bike, writing is riding your stationary bike. Whatever that is, you have to make the mental task of writing into a physical task of writing. And it's almost like a yoga thing where you actually can feel it moving from your head to your stomach. And when that happens, you begin to be able to, to do it. And, and you know, Anthony Trollope, the great novelist, did four hours in the morning. He would wake up at 5 a.m. because he had to get to the post office because he worked at the post office by 9. And that's, and that's how he did it. And he did it every single day and wrote... 40 of the greatest novels in English doing that. So it's making that ta mental task of writing into physical task. Because the good news is, your brain is smarter than your mind. If you simply unleash it to start writing, you will find that you are writing. And you will be surprised by what you do. And you can always make something that exists better, but you can't make something that, that doesn't exist exist. And that's the key to writing, and that's, and that's how you approach it. The good news about writing, at least for me, is that the more you do it, maybe it's out of sheer masochism, the more you like it. I love to write now. I flip open my laptop in the morning, and I feel fully human. You know, my laptop has become my cognitive prosthesis. Like, it's my little Turk, right? I feel stronger and better, like the chess player buried inside, once I'm in laptop world, once I'm in writing world. Than I, than I do as a human being. So that's how you have to approach it. And I think that's true across any, any field that you, you take in. But the good news is, if you simply make it a physical task, you will amaze yourself by, by your ability to do it. You have mental aerobics that are like physical aerobics and that you can that improve by practice. Uh, hi there. Hi. Um, I was wondering what your view is of raw natural talent, or in some cases, perhaps even genius, and whether that challenges the, certainly the 10,000-hour theory or your theory of mastery. What do you think about that? Well, as I've been trying to say tonight, I think that the two things have to are obviously, and it's a banal observation, but true, have to interact, right? Obviously, there, there are people with more specific talent for something than not. Uh, Paul McCartney is a wonderful singer. I am not a wonderful singer. He was always a wonderful singer. He was a wonderful singer when he was a choir boy. Uh, he was a wonderful singer later on. But the being in a position where that gift actually advanced the art, had something unique about it, came out of 
his perseverance in learning music and out of the unique set of circumstances in which he found himself. Gave the example of Bob Dylan before, right? Bob Dylan has an extraordinary skill at writing melodies above all, which people often overlook, or, and was extraordinarily shrewd in seeing, you know, there's a wonderful story, he stole a copy of Rambo's lyrics from uh, a place where he was staying, because he saw that kind of imagery, that unspooling imagery, could be the material of popular song lyrics, which no one had imagined before. But along with that, with the genius that Bob Dylan has, comes the, the, his perseverance at his art form, right? And that's why we remember Bob Dylan more than Phil Oakes, for instance, if that name means anything to anyone. So I absolutely, irrevocably believe in genius and natural talent. But what I observe when I look at both the world I know and the history I study is that those things blossomed only through perseverance and circumstance and the good fortune of circumstance. Mozart is the most gifted human being who ever lived, and no one ever worked harder at music than Mozart. The two things go go together. Hello, my name is Zay. Um, hey, Zay. I want to ask you around the concept of imposter syndrome. So I find myself in a lot of spaces that I never imagined I would be in. And so I'm curious, what are your thoughts and experiences around the concept of imposter syndrome? And if you have experienced it, how have you kind of overcome those moments? Well, I, I experience, I've cured imposter syndrome with what we might call charlatan syndrome, right? You just you take accept that you're an imposter and go on. Um, <laughs> I think that everyone who does anything, if by imposter syndrome you mean the sense that I'm really not that good, I'm really not able to do it, I'm faking my way through it. I think every person has had those moments in, in doing it. It's part of what it is to perform being a human being, right? Is you, you, you never feel adequate to it. One of, the, one of the paradoxes, I think, of mastery in this sense, one of the mysteries of mastery is exactly that there's a, there's a kind of vicious circle. The better you actually get at doing something, not like me boxing or driving, the more dissatisfied you become with it because you see the space between your ambitions and your accomplishment. Other people may just see your accomplishments, but you can only see the space between your original ambitions for your accomplishments and your accomplishments, and they're never good enough. They're never, they never fulfill though, that, that role. So I think any talented person suffers from imposter syndrome. In that, in that sense, if by it we mean lying all the time or pretending to know things you don't know or telling people, you know, like George Costanzo on Seinfeld, right, that you're a marine biologist when you're not, I would step away from it. But if we mean by it the perpetual feeling of dissatisfaction with your own accomplishments, that's usually a sign of, of talent and shrewd self-consciousness. Oh, thanks, Adam. Um, I'm interested in, so I, I'm kind of taking you've cracked the code on getting good at something, getting, getting good at stuff. So I'm interested in, um, I think I read it in Stealing Fire. So they, they get Navy SEALs and they, they stick them in, they change their brainwaves so they can speak Russian or Arabic quicker. So my question to you is, if I want to do anything, can I get to a point where I can sort of do anything but do it really, really quickly? So, so I don't care about 10,000 hours, I just want to do it now. <laughs> I, I certainly wouldn't make a fetish of the 10,000 hours, you know, that I, I suspect, and, and 
it's odd, not odd, but interesting you choose this, the Navy SEALs as an example. One of the truths of wartime, because I suffer from periuresis, the only way I can get through all the long plane flights I have to take on a book tour is by reading either rock and roll biographies or military history. Those are the two things that distract me sufficiently. So in the past four weeks, I could pass an exam on Chuck Berry's history and inner life and on landing on Juno Beach on D-Day. And one of the things that you find in military history all the time is that problems that seemed overwhelming in peacetime get solved in wartime remarkably quickly, like the problem of how you make an amphibious tank. That's what one comes to mind. But those pressures are special and specific and contingent and tend not to survive the crisis moment as well. So uh, I suspect the answer is yes, but... The pleasure, I would add, in learning something when you're learning it for the sheer pleasure of accomplishment, absorption, exposure to the flow, the cognitive opiate of improvement, is that you do it on a regular basis. You box twice a week and you find yourself at the end being a, a marginally better boxer. Hi. Um, I don't know if you know of a group of schools in America, sorry, actually, They're, who follow something right. called the mastery concept. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've come across those no. schools. They've actually created a curriculum which is based on mastering certain things for children rather than the exam system that every, pretty much every schooling system follows. Um, and I was wondering whether you thought that, in the new world uh, in particular, um, whether this idea of um, mastery could in some way be kind of introduced into the more formal education system yeah, yeah, in some way. I don't know if you've absolutely, had any absolutely. discussions about that with yes. people, because it seems so relevant to... I've talked about it with my sister. That's one of the way that actually... And my sister, Allison, whose books I recommend you buy after you buy mine, um, <laughs> is, has a lovely illustration of this. She said, if we taught our kids to play football the same way we teach them to do science, they would hate football as much as they hate doing science, right? We allow them enormous freedom. We, we give them standards they have to play and, and improve, but they control the activity and they see it as an accomplishment rather than an achievement they're being driven to. I didn't know about this master curriculum. I'd love to know more about it. But everything I know about what, how children learn and everything I know about what we ought to value in life leads me to believe that that's a, that that's a very sound and, and potent idea. Thank you for brilliant questions. I'm sorry it's um, time to come to an end, but you're going to be signing. I your... will sign books and gladly will answer questions with my mouth as I sign with my hand. That's another accomplishment <laughs> that writers on book tours become expert at. Um, so as I said at the beginning, thank you all very, very much for coming. Adam, thank you so much for a fascinating conversation. Delighted Wonderful to be time. here. I love being here. Thank you all. This episode starred Adam Gopnik and was presented by Hannah McInnes. It was produced by Nicole Wong and the show is made by me and Esme Bright. Special thanks to Rosie Fletcher at The Conduit. Adam's book, The Real Work, is out now. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts to hear in-depth from masters of many, many other disciplines. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.